Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. (laughs) He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and I'm empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Financial Foresight Podcast. We took a little hiatus and want to address that up front. First and foremost, we take uh, every quarter uh, time to reflect on our businesses, run through the numbers, and really share and be open about that. So Colin, Dwight, Ian, and myself all sat down, ran through the numbers. So we took a little time to make sure that we're doing things the right way um, within our businesses. So we are back ready to talk about different topics and articles that we've been reading through and listening to. And the first one was one that Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth Management had written. Ian, you had discovered this article. Do you want to share a little bit why? And then we'll dive into the content. Sure. So Ben Carlson posted this yesterday on August 11th, and it's called This is What Happens as Societies Become Wealthier. And it's a general discussion about kind of the low to negative interest rate environment that we're in. You know, people always, well, uh, let me rephrase that. Economists always say that this trend can't continue, right? That interest rates can't go lower. But there's some data that Ben shares pointing to the fact that as societies become wealthier and more well-established and markets become more efficient, there's less of a reason for interest rates to exist, right? Because there's all this money available being saved and invested. So banks can run off of that. So they don't need to charge the interest rates that they used to. And I thought that it was an interesting article from a couple perspectives. The first being that, you know, obviously we come from, as younger people, we come from a generation where we're used to this lower interest rate environment, but we probably have some listeners who aren't and remember when it was, you know, 8, 10% in a bank account. Um, and then I also think that it's just an interesting overall conversation about the efficiency and growth of economies over time in the established world. I feel like a big reason for this to be happening, and this is true for a lot of things, is that technology is just making this stuff easier. Um, I mean, I know they put in the example here that just the access to capital or just the access to um, investing is just so much more fluid. I mean, back in the day, in order to uh, be able to have a well-diversified portfolio, you would have to be making you know hundreds of different individual trades and trying to rebalance the portfolios is would be really, really difficult holding on to all these different securities. Or nowadays, you can just hop onto Vanguard.com. You guys might have heard of them before. <laughs> buy one ETF, uh, and you could be holding 3,500 different companies from around the world and be completely diversified after one transaction that is uh, potentially even free or maybe $499 uh, transaction where. Uh, that just did not exist. So I think between just the technology uh, 
allowing us to this uh, this stuff to be more accessible. Um, also, probably just the stability of our financial markets. I mean, back in the day when you were loaning out money, uh, you know, we didn't have necessarily uh, the same accounting system or requirement for like the IRS to keep track of our stuff. So I feel like things are just a little bit more established, a little bit safer. Technology has made things a little more fluid. So the reason and the demand for interest rates kind of keeps going down on just simple capital. Yeah, and I just even think with the way of technology increasing and lowering the cost, just think about our businesses versus the old school models that we would have been, you know, we would have had to work in, a, you know, a wirehouse or a large broker dealer back in the day because that was really the only access to be able to provide what was financial advice or, you know, say product sales then. Um, it is it is wild. And I think there's a lot to unpack here with is this negative interest rate environment, is it going to be sustainable? Is this the start of something that's going to unwind into uh, a nasty you know, global recession again? I'm much more of a devil's advocate with these things. I don't look at it as all that positive when you have, I think it was Iceland offering mortgages that were negative interest rates like that. It's uh, Denmark. Denmark, okay. Um, one of those uh, you know, countries, but to me that's ludicrous and that doesn't end well. And there's a lot of different, you know, areas out there where as an investor, you need to not get just fall in love with uh, certain things that are going on. But yes, as far as the quality of our lifestyle today versus what it was even 50 years ago is dramatically different. And you go back hundreds like our the the ability of even someone that is, quote unquote, low income today is wild compared to what it was years and years ago. Um, the cost of investing has come down. I would challenge you like, yes, you can buy one ETF, but is that diversified? Again, we can have, go round and round on that conversation, but it, it has lowered the cost. If you're paying yeah, someone Colin, to- you gotta watch, you gotta watch ever bringing up the word diversification with Isaiah, cause he's gonna grill you on what diversification truly is. We need to, we're gonna, we're gonna have a podcast about diversification <laughs> we, sometime. We really do really, need to do like a gonna, 20 minute episode. And we're gonna, we're gonna Isaiah rip into that. Um, but- with that, yes, it's amazing. And I, I just told a potential client last week, if they're going to pay me to invest their assets, they're paying me um, for nothing. Like that's not going to be what I'm bringing them. Um, and if they want any to someone just to have it invested, there's a lot of other ways to go out and do that. Like it should be about financial advice. It should be about planning and helping them get to where they want to go with their circumstances, which as a business owner and some of the different things they have going on, there's a lot of complexity there. And it's not about just, you know, how are we going to invest this money? So that's a huge long tangent outside of the article, but the article's a really good one. Carlson always seems to drop really, really good articles and um, A Wealth of Common Sense is his blog. I would encourage you to check it out because there's a lot to be learned from him. Yeah, I mean, to, to wrap up the discussion on this article, I think, you know, the Denmark situation is a little bit of an outlier, right? There aren't like hundreds of different banks around the world offering these negative interest rates. It's, it's a few. But one thing that is definitely true is so far in a growing economy, what we've noticed is that because of market efficiencies, interest rates are lower in general, right? And I think that whether we have an economic crisis or not is something that's almost impossible to predict. But I think in growing economies in the future, in established growing economies, we're going to start seeing lower interest rates like this because the markets just are super efficient, like Colin was talking about. 
and investing is so cheap and they're really trying to eke out whatever fractions of percent they can with client cash. So, Do we think inflation is dead? Has technology destroyed inflation where the cost of goods no longer will go up and it's just everything is going to become you know, disinflationary where it's cheaper? Shipping basically is free now. If I have to pay for shipping when I buy something, I'm like, hell no, because I don't have to pay for shipping if I buy it from a lot oh, of places. That's- so that's like, an interesting let's, question, man. Like, is inflation dead? <laughs> that's exactly what I was just about to ask. I, I wasn't sure if we were going to end this topic, but I'm glad that you brought it up because I was just thinking about it. If you guys ever listen to the podcast by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, he has an uh, anonymous guest uh, that goes by the pseudonym Jesse Livermore, and he has a great discussion about the role that inflation plays and or in interest rates play and technology plays and the dampening effect that technology brings to inflation it's it's so interesting and I, I it was such a great point for him and just to hear from an expert that he does not believe that anyone actually understands truly the causes of inflation because there's just so many ties to it i know people will say oh if you print more money then it'll make your your you know money worth less and that's what causes inflation and there's just so much more that goes into it but i think it's kind of impossible to predict but his final belief was that yes he thought that inflation was going to be probably instead of averaging around three percent probably averaging closer to like two or or maybe even a little bit less than that see and i think that inflation is going to be different i don't think it's going to be gone one of the things that we can notice as a trend over the past like 10 years is instead of inflation increasing the cost of milk or you know a gallon of gasoline the same way it used to what it has done is brought new services that every american pays for into our lives like a cell phone and that was a cost that we were never including in our lives before the existence of smartphones, right? So it's not necessarily that the cost of smartphones went up. It's that we now have this new technology that we are almost universally paying for because the convenience offered by it is insane, right? So I don't I don't know that inflation is necessarily going to be reflected in the same way because like you said, Isaiah, it's going to get the cost of a lot of goods gets cheaper over time because of efficiencies that technology brings to us. But I think new technology costs are going to be something that we're going to continue to see across the board because things are going to be invented that we haven't even thought of yet. And we're going to pay for those things because they're going to be awesome. Yeah. I just, I go back to the same thing. Like who knows what inflation looks like, Um, but preparing for something like, Oh yeah, there's no inflation anymore. It used to be high. There's none now. That That's a poor decision. Just like everyone from an economics standpoint was like, rates are going up. They've said that since I was at my very first job from like the first day. I remember like, oh, you, you, you need to prepare for rates going up and short duration and all this stuff. And if you look at, I was just looking at one of the models that I run. The best performer of the last year was long duration treasuries, which was up over 20%. Like if you would tell someone that, they'd be like, oh, well, stocks have done great last year. Actually, they haven't. They're about flat. So it's wild that every single person said rates are going to go up. And we in 2018, we were over 3%. Now we're back sub 2. So you do not know where things are going to go. And I think it goes back to the whole conversation, which we'll have another time around diversification and having fragile portfolios or having something that is not fragile and building something that's sustainable regardless of what environment you're in. And 
yeah, so who knows what happens with inflation? All I know is, um, you know, there are certain things that re- react better or different to inflation than, than others. And gold is one of those. And gold has done fantastic to start uh, 2019. So what does that tell us? Who knows? Well, uh, I guess we should pivot to our Tweet of the Week topic now. Because I think that was a pretty good summary of all of our, you know, minor in economics takes on inflation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... But so let's uh, let's let's go ahead and flip to our tweet of the week. This week we have one from Colin. So Colin, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So uh, this one I actually had to go and dig up, and it stemmed from a question that a client sent over to me. Uh, said, "Hey, Colin. Basically, uh, long story short, my four hundred one k is uh, kicking as far as portfolio or uh, performance goes this year for twenty nineteen is is kicking your portfolio's ass. Uh, why is this?" And we dove in and looked at, wow, yep, he was really overweight in U.S. stocks, basically just hanging on to the S&P 500 large cap U.S. stocks. And no wonder his portfolio has been doing good just for the year of of 2019. I mean, the market's been up um, year to date uh, about 18 percent. And we said, uh, you know, so I just kind of explained to him, you know, what he was holding and stuff. And this got me thinking a little bit more uh, and doing some research and started comparing my portfolios to the S&P 500 and just kind of see, just to compare and contrast as I was explaining this to him. And I stumbled across uh, this tweet uh, that had an awesome article by Phil uh, Huber, who writes for uh, his uh, blog, Bips and Pieces. And it was all about how we are now officially 10 years past the, uh, a little bit over now, this is a, a probably a couple months old here, I wrote this in, in uh, July, and that we are 10 years past the, uh, the bounce back of the, the 09 uh, collapse, the financial market collapse. And the reason that makes such a big difference is that a lot of people run uh, on their portfolios 10-year returns. And if we no longer have that large uh, sell-off, basically all we have are now on our reports 10 bull market or 10 up market years. And I was just amazed to see that over the last 10 years, the S&P 500 has done a little over 14% per year returns. And I was just, like I said, comparing, and I, I have some more numbers, but I'll let you guys speak on it first, um, just how incredible that is to, to have and how difficult that is to try to beat and compare, especially when you're comparing against globally diversified portfolios, which is obviously going to lose to the S&P 500 that has been the number one performing asset class in the world. Um, but so your guys' thoughts, and then I do have some, some other numbers that I shared with my client to try to bring in the uh, idea that diversification is a good idea. I guess my question, and I'll ask it live here, and hopefully no one's looked, and we'll see what the answer is. So if you looked at the S&P 500, emerging markets, a developed international, or U.S. Treasury index of uh, 20 years plus, which one returned the most the last 20 years? And so we're recording this in beginning of August, so think August, August, so August 1999 to August 2019. Ooh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say international. So we'll go emerging markets because I think they have high volatility, but they usually return the highest average. I think I would, I would actually go with the same. So U.S. Treasuries returned 328%, so that's the number one returning. Wow. Emerging markets over 300, S&P 230. Wow. And when I look at that, 
I just had a conversation recently too with someone and they said, why would I ever pay someone to manage their assets? Now they've never worked with an advisor, again, not get into fee structures and, and all that other stuff, but they were just asking the question, like, why would I ever pay for someone to manage my assets? They're like, you know, last 10 years, same thing, Colin. Like, this is kicked ass. Why would I have anyone else do it? I'm fine with 100% risk. Exactly. And just 100% S&P. So the S&P over that 20 years has lost 55%. I don't know a soul on the face of the earth that is comfortable with that. And anyone that is, is lying and they've never lived through it. Yep. Um, so diversification is, like they say, the only you know free lunch that you can have out there, which is important to have that. But I told him, like, if I would tell you the last 20 years that the U.S. Treasuries is the best place to be, why wouldn't you invest in that in the next 20? Oh, well, this and this and this. And he had all these reasons why he wouldn't want to do that. It's too conservative. You know, rates are going to go up, all this other stuff. I'm like, well, the same thing can be said for the S&P 500, the last 10. How do you know what the next 10 is going to look like? Yeah. You don't. So why would you build something based on the last 10, what you should do? And so if we look at just 10 years, emerging markets have returned 50% and the S&P has returned 255 why on earth would I put more money into something that's the most expensive versus something that's done absolutely nothing? It's just ludicrous. That's how people are wired. We chase returns. We do stupid things. But if you want to do something counterintuitive, you would want to go out and invest in things that haven't done well. Last point, and I'll let you jump on here, Ian. Um, If you look at Morningstar rankings in mutual funds, everyone likes the five-star funds. They brag how great they are. If you'd actually just buy the one- and two-star funds... Instead of the five stars, you'd actually have better returns, which is wild. And again, counterintuitive, but a lot of times those funds that have poor star rankings just are in a, an asset class or a part of the market that haven't done nearly as well. And people are like, oh, we don't want these. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important, and going back to the value of an advisor helping you invest, that you're building a portfolio that performs decently in any market. Um, you know, we're not going to be beating the S&P 500 every time. We're not going to be beating the emerging markets every time. We're not going to even be beating U.S. Treasuries every time, which is such a counterintuitive thought, right? But the the thing is, is that if you build a diversified portfolio like you're talking about, Isaiah, you'll do decently in most markets, right? And that's what financial planning is all about. It's not about getting you rich next week. It's about getting you wealthy over time through consistent, repeatable actions. And uh, I don't know that you can consistently, repeatably predict which asset class is going to perform best over 10 years. You just can't. So, And compounding works best if you don't have huge losses. Compounding works really, really well when you can have consistent returns. And that is what's going to win the race long term than having years that you're up 35, but then you're down 50. Like that... Yeah, you you it, you struggle to really grow wealth because at the end of the day, any rational human is going to get scared in those really large moves. And I've seen people that say, "Hey, you just need to buy three funds, you stick with it, and you're good." I hear you. I, I think they're overestimating how um, strong some people's um, you know willpower is, and they will get frustrated when things don't work as well, especially when the U.S. has been the only ticket in town and especially U.S. large cap only has just blown the doors off of anything else and diversification hasn't worked. 
but that doesn't mean it stopped working. Yeah, those are those are awesome points. It, it is really difficult to have that conversation with a client and be recommending a portfolio that has performed worse. And and I always try to steer away from those performance conversations. But you know, it's it's just uh, what we want to be. You know, like clients ask and they want to know and they deserve to know. Uh, but they also deserve to know you know, really the, the idea behind it of, like you guys said, not just why would you pour all of your money into an asset that has become more and more expensive, you know, kind of just that idea that we're chasing returns. And that's, you know, you if you keep chasing returns, you can't, uh, like Gretzky says, you know, you can't skate to where the puck has been, you got to skate to where it's going. Um, and if you don't know exactly with any certainty where the puck's going to be going the best is to to build a portfolio that can weather all storms yeah for sure i mean i think i think the thing that really stands out to me is that sequence of returns is like one of this one of these like really hidden aspects to investing that people don't really take into account and that doesn't just come at retirement which is when us as planners most talk about it right because if you have a down year right before you retire and you have to withdraw from your portfolio it's devastating we get that but it also comes when people get really flighty and pull out of the market when it's down that's a sequence of returns problem the problem isn't the fact that the asset class performs an average of 10 percent the problem is that the asset class had a down year of 25 and the client got scared, right? So I I, I feel like diverse, diversified portfolios mitigate a lot of that behavioral risk by maybe being better at weathering those storms, not dropping the 25 to 50% at a market drop and those sorts of things. And you can change the return timeframe to make whatever scenario, whatever investment that you want it to be make sense and look awesome. Like if you want to cherry pick dates, we can cherry pick dates. We can say, oh man, this just absolutely crushed it. Why wouldn't you go hundred percent there? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Hindsight's 2020. Um, but you can, you can do that with any, any type of investment. There's always going to be a market where something works and other things don't. Yeah. And I just think at the end of the day, you want things that are robust and work well together and when one thing really is struggling, that something else is coming up and saying, you know what, I'm here to, to help right the ship. The quote for that, Isaiah, is that stats don't lie, but statisticians do, right? You can slice up data to tell any story. Yep. You can torture it any way you want, and it'll, it'll eventually confess to what you want to see. Just like the U.S. Treasury thing. To me, I just love sharing that example because no, no one can, will guess that that's it. Because everyone's told, hey, stocks are riskier than bonds. You make more in stocks. And it's like, well, there's a 20-year period. And how many of us have 20-year periods in our lives of investing? There's not that many 20-year periods, if you think about it. So uh, that's a big chunk of someone's life where it would have made sense to go 100% there. One, one of my least favorite uh, chops, of, which is so popular, um, of, of just using the data is year-to-date. It's like just this arbitrary, you know, January 1st. I mean, it's obvious to us, but it makes no sense for the markets. Um, but because the S&P is just killing it, you know, quote unquote, year to date. But they don't show that just two months prior, we had crazy volatility and in, in, in basically an 18% downfall. And then all of a sudden, here comes January 1st, stop, cut the tape. And then it only shows the rebound getting basically back to where we were. Um, 
you know, it, it is it is pretty funny when when you just randomly chop data and and use dates whenever you want them to to create whatever story you're trying to illustrate. But we will, we promise, we will have a diversification episode, and we'll get into the weeds for those that want it because I think it'd be fun. Because we do have difference of opinion, and I think for a lot of our conversation topics, we all agree, and I think this would be one where we might disagree a little bit. Yeah, well. <laughs> I just got to get into a heated shouting match with Isaiah on this podcast. No, no shouting. It's just, I, it was a joke, Isaiah. I'm not going to yell Facts at you. and figures, man. <laughs> well, in one corner, um, we have standing. <laughs> oh, don't, don't talk about my weight, dude. It's still not down from working out yet. <laughs> with the projected weight of... Yeah, don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Future value. <laughs> future value of Ian's weight we, no. we just talked about how you cannot um predict the future so again <laughs> exactly um so do we want to wrap up here or Colin you kind of mentioned that you had some some other numbers you might want to um, share um yeah sure I mean I'll just kind of throw them out there here a second uh so for the last 10 year S&P 500 uh has annualized returns with reinvested dividends of 14 percent per year for the last 10 years um, I just used a uh, Betterment portfolio, a 90-10, uh, had only 10% returns, uh, annualized returns with reinvested dividends for that same time frame. So obviously the U.S. is just killing a globally diversified portfolio. Plus it's a 90-10, so it's in, in the S&P is 100% equity. Uh, but I was just comparing that in that conversation I had to my client of what they're holding and, and their Roth. Um, and then if you go back from 99 to 2009, uh, you for that 10-year period, the S&P averaged a negative 1.5% returns with reinvested dividends, where a globally diversified, that exact same 90-10 portfolio did 2.6. So, you know, a little over a 3% delta there. And then if you add the, ten, the two 10-year periods, so it's a 20-year period from 1999 to 2019, S&P 500 with reinvested dividends to just below six, where a globally diversified 90-10 uh, Betterment portfolio did uh, 6.25. So it beat the S&P by, you know, th- uh, about 0.3%. And, and really the, it actually had a little bit less volatility. Um, so it was really just the point of, uh, you know, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. You'll have a period of 10 years with negative returns with the S&P, followed by the one of the greatest bull markets we've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's just kind of wrapping up what uh, we've all just agreed on. So uh, Mama said moderation. <laughs> Mama did say moderation. All right. Well, I guess that's where we'll close out. Hope you guys have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember, the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.